Thanks for pressing play. And welcome to a very special, extraordinary episode of Christopher Lockhead Fall, You're Different. And if by chance you're a first-time listener, um, this podcast is what's called an authentic dialogue podcast. So what you're about to hear is a real, unedited, unfettered, unfiltered conversation about an extraordinary event that happened on October 7th and has been impacting the rest of the world since. During World War II, over 6 million Jewish people were killed in Nazi concentration camps. On October 7th, 2023, Hamas terrorists attacked Israel in what would be the worst single day for Jews since World War II. Our guest today is an extraordinary woman named Natalie Sandaji. She's an American Jew with strong roots in Israel and the Middle East. She was at the Nova Festival on October 7th. And what you're about to hear is her story, what happened, what she did, and what has happened since. And you might think you know a lot about that day. Uh, I thought I did. And I learned much from Natalie's firsthand account. Natalie is now working with a phenomenal organization called Combat Antisemitism Movement, or CAM for short. You can find them at combatantisemitismmovement.org. And I would encourage you to listen to this episode with open ears and an open heart. Now, as Joey Ramone said, who happens to be a Jew, hey-ho, let's go. How are you, Natalie? I'm good. Um, thankfully, I, I can say, like, thank God. I've been very busy, and I feel like that's keeping my mental state as good as it can be. Well, I'm really, really glad you're here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here as well. Well, thanks for coming. So... What attracted you to go to the festival in the first place? I'm just sort of curious. What made you decide to leave? Are you in New York or New Jersey? In New York. New York. What decided? What yeah. made you decide to leave New York and go to Israel for this uh, this festival? So we'll start like kind of at the beginning, quote unquote. Um, so. I am an American Jew born to Iranian and Israeli parents. And as a daughter of an Israeli mom, I have been going to Israel basically almost every year for my entire life. I would go for the summers, um, for holidays, for weddings. I have a lot of family there from both sides of my family. Grandparents, cousins, aunts and uncles, things like um, that? My grandparents are all here at this point. My One of my grandmas used to be in Israel, um, but a lot of cousins, aunts, uncles, a lot of friends that I've made over the years from going to Israel um, on vacation. And this summer I went mostly for a friend's wedding. And then I decided to extend 
and be there for the holidays and be with friends and family. Typically, when I go to Israel, I, I try to go from between one month to two months, uh, just because there's so many people for me to visit and so many things that I want to see, such as like going to Jerusalem and going to the beaches in Tel Aviv and going hiking in the north. And there's just so many different things that like kind of uh, a checklist that you want to like check everything off and you need a certain amount of time for that. Um, so this summer I went for a friend's wedding and then I stayed for the holidays and I heard about this festival probably a month before I even got to Israel, uh, simply because of the fact that I love Psytrance and there aren't a lot of Psytrance events in New York. There's not a very big Psytrance community. Most Psytrance parties tend to, um, happen out in nature in Israel they call them misibot teva which means nature party and i was very excited to go to this festival it was going to be my first quote unquote nature party um i ended up actually last minute going to another one a week prior to the nova festival so the nova festival was not my first thankfully because it would have been a really horrible first party but that's that's what attracted me to the party. It's actually a pretty well-known event. And Nova itself, like the organizers, they throw events in Israel pretty frequently. Like they have events, I think, three, four times a year in Israel. So it's a pretty well-known um, kind of party group. So I went to the party with three friends. We got there at around 1 a.m., and when you first get there with these type of... And what was like, the date, Natalie? When when did you arrive at the Nova Festival? So technically, it was like October 6th at night, but it was already 1 a.m. So it was already October 7th. And when you get to festivals like this that are usually like two days or like one and a half days or three days, you typically you get there, you set up camp, you usually like sleep there. So with festivals like this, people aren't like... Obviously, people are smoking weed, drinking, whatnot. And uh, you're typically not driving. You're typically like staying for like the entirety of the festival or at least half of it. So you set up camp. You bring your own tents, sleeping bags, blankets, snacks, drinks. So we first, we get there and it was me and three friends and they're all Israeli. I was the only American. And the is group. there normally dancing or... Uh, what happens during a, uh, you'll have to excuse me, I haven't been to one of these <laughs> festivals. The festivals I tend to go to are rock and roll ones. So please educate me what <laughs> normally happens um, if all goes well. So typically there's at least one stage, which is like one DJ. Some festivals have like two or three or four stages. So like four different DJs at the same time. And um, they'll also have like vendors, some of them have massages, some of them have ice baths, some of them have like face painting, yoga, um, different like jewelry stands you can buy from. So they'll, they'll have like all different types of attractions like on the festival grounds. And is there, uh, you know, if I think about Burning Man here in the U.S., is there kind of art or, uh, you know, big presentations of creative wackadoo ideas or is it not as much of that? 
Burning Man is definitely different than any other event, just because of, like the size and whatnot. But um, but yeah, there's there's like different artists that come and they sell their art or they're making the art like while at the festival itself. Uh, so there's like a lot of different attractions to visit. Uh, other than just the dancing. So during the daytime when there's, I assume the dancing and the DJ and stuff is mostly uh, as it's heading into twilight into dark. Is that, is that right? Or is there, is there music so and going, dancing all day? It's constant. It's constant. Yeah. It's okay. constant. So like, let, let's say the festival is two days. It'll be like constant, like DJ after DJ after DJ for like two days. And like, obviously that's why people set up camps so that if they get tired, you go back to your campsite, you obviously aren't like, um required to be on the dance floor the whole time people go back to their campsite take a nap sleep for a few hours um and then come but the back party to the never floor. ends there's always for the whole thing it it's stops. on and you decide yeah. when you want to be part of it being on and not exactly yeah it's definitely not for someone who's a light sleeper because the campsites are like in a circle around where the dance floor is in the middle. So like from your campsite, you can hear the music very clearly. So if you're a light sleeper, it's going to be hard for you. <laughs> Got it. And um, how many people were at the Nova festival? I think it was in the high two thousands to like maybe 3000, maybe even a little over 3000. And compared to other festivals in Israel, or maybe the one you went to prior to that, is that a big festival for Israel? Small, medium? Sort of help me understand. It, it's pretty big. It is. It's, I, I would say it's pretty big. Um, yeah, it's definitely one of the bigger ones. Like, let's say the one I went to a week prior, I think it was maybe half of that. Okay. So it's a well-known. And then, and so, um, and most of who are there are typically younger people. Is that is that right? Yeah. I, I would say um, the age range was from maybe the youngest was like 18, 19, all the way to like maybe like mid 40s. I would say like the oldest that I saw. Um, less, <laughs> a, a smaller percentage of people like in their mid 40s. I would say like the average age was like between, let's say, 22 to 28. I'm 28. So we'll say like that's like the average. Okay. And you were there with friends? Yeah, I, I was there with three friends uh, who are all native Israelis. And guys, girls, in the mix? All, all guys. And when we met up there, um, when we got there and like went to the campsite, the campsite was already set up. And we met up with like 15 of their other friends that were like guys, girls, and uh, we joined their campsite. So you were part of a pretty good sized group. Uh, a mm -hmm. few guys that you knew that were friends and you met up with their friends and you got yeah. in late and you were ready for a couple days of fun. Uh, how was the weather? Was it nice? Oh, it was beautiful. It was perfect weather, like not too cold, not too hot. Um, perfect for being outdoors and dancing so that you're not like sweating too much, but you're not shivering. It was really, it was pretty perfect up until 630. <laughs> yeah. So uh, if I'm remembering this right, you got in the night of the morning of the 7th, essentially the night of the 6th heading into the yeah. 7th. And what time did you say you got there again, Natalie? We got there at around like, I would say like 1, 1.30. Yeah. And the party's going on. So if you wanted to dance right away, you could, or if you wanted to set up camp and relax and 
So kind of walk me through, you get there, uh, you set up your camp, and then and then what happens? So when we got there, our camp was already set up because we met up with their other friends who got there before us. And we got there, we dropped off our stuff because we brought like extra change of clothes and whatnot for overnight. Um, and we sat down with like all of the kids who were already there and I'm introducing myself to everyone and everyone's just super friendly. and. Something I, I want to kind of point out about the side trans community itself is out of all the, I guess, like electronic music communities that there are, whether it's like techno or tech house, side trans, I think the community would most be compared to the Woodstock community in the sense that they're very like hippy dippy and like extra friendly and loving and accepting. And an example of that is the week before I went to another festival that had Psytrance, but it wasn't just Psytrance. So it was a lot of kids from like other types of music communities. And the girls were like a little bit like standoffish and like not so friendly to me when I arrived with my friends because I'm like this new girl coming into the group and they were like very cold. And I remember when I got to the Nova Festival, I had a little bit of anxiety from the week prior and I was like, oh, like I'm meeting all these girls again who don't know who I am. They're going to be territorial of their guy friends and they're like going to exclude me and not talk to me. And I just remember as soon as I got there, like I was like a little bit kind of shy and had a little bit of anxiety from like meeting these girls. And as soon as I sat down, they were like, who are you? What's your name? Have a snack. Have a drink. Where are you from? Blah, blah, blah. Like just like trying to get to know me, being so friendly, being so open. and it just makes me all the more sad and it's, it makes it all the more ironic that they were the ones that got attacked because people keep trying to say like, Oh, it's, it, it was well-deserved. And, and it's like, how, like, how can you say that such loving kids, such sweet souls deserved something so horrific? And just the fact that it was the side trans community and how they really are compared to like, the Woodstock community of back then. Um, it, it just makes it all the more ironic and all the more sad. It does. It's terrible. And wasn't it, wasn't it a peace themed festival or, or was there a specific theme to it? So, yeah, I would say that generally side trans festivals, a lot of the theme is like peace and unity and love. And like, that's just like the, the theme of their community. That's it. And that's why I say it's like, like compared to Woodstock, because it's very much about that in general. And thus the welcome that you got that was different from the prior one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, the other thing is, I'm sure you've heard this. There are people who have suggested that um, the attack at the festival was fake. There are people who have suggested that the uh, IDF attacked the festival. Um, what does it make you think and feel when you hear those sorts of things? It's very upsetting because to go through something so traumatic and to have witnessed it, to have been there, to have heard the gunshots, to have had to run for my life for hours um, from being shot at and to have to be in fear of losing my life in that moment in a, in a moment where I, 
I thought I was just going to a festival. I thought I was just going to have fun and let loose and relax and not think about the outside world. That's kind of like what these festivals are about. It's like a retreat to just block out all the outside noise and to just enjoy yourself with your friends. And to have gone through all of that and for people to say that it was fake or to have people say that the IDF attacked us. It's as if they find it so hard to believe that a terrorist organization would attack people. Like Hamas had body cameras. They There's recent footage of the Hamas terrorists right before the attack with their body cameras. They put on their body cameras when they were like in their houses or offices or wherever they are in this specific video. And it shows them with drugs all on the table. And they took an immense amount of drugs to have that energy and to have that rage to attack us the way they did. And for there to be literal proof of all of this from them that they're releasing, and then to have people still tell me it's fake or you were attacked by your own army and your own government, it just proves to me how anti-Semitic the world is. And that's the only reason I can think of that people would try to convince themselves of something that's so ridiculous. I'm very sorry about that. So, and I don't want you to go anywhere you don't want to go, Natalie. So, um, go where you like. Walk me through, you know, so it's one thirty. you get there, you're making new friends. Um, what time does the attack, or what time do you become aware that something's not right? So... Like I said, we got there at around 1.30. Then we go drop our, se- our stuff off at our campsite. And then we dance for about maybe two, two and a half hours. And then at around... Was it fun? Uh, three, it, it was very fun. For, so you were having a great that's, time. That's honestly the only amount of time I got to enjoy the actual festival. It was just about two, two and a half hours. And then my friends and I, um, we were all kind of tired. Some of my friends the night before were at a different festival, so they were a little tired because of that. And I was a little tired because the day before, I went hiking up north. Um, And we all decided that we would go back to our campsite, nap for a few hours, and then wake up for the sunrise set of the festival. And instead of waking up to the music of the sunrise set, at 6.30, we were woken up to the sound of rockets. And the way we were woken up, this is something I I always emphasize um, when I describe it. One of our friends from our campsite, she was on the dance floor when the first rockets were intercepted overhead. And she knew that we were still at the campsite sleeping. We hadn't woken up yet. So she came back to the campsite to wake us up um, because she wanted to make sure that we were alert to what was happening. So she came and she woke us up and she was all smiley and she was like, Hey guys, good morning. I just wanted, wanted you to know a few rockets were intercepted overhead, but it's fine. It's Iron Dome got them, normal. Natalie. Iron Dome got those yes. rockets. They didn't land. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So when the Iron Dome gets them, the, the biggest fear you still have is like scraps from the intercepted rockets kind of like flying all over the place. So there's still that danger, but thankfully the rockets themselves did not hit us. And she she was like describing to us, she was like, it's fine. It's kind of normal for the area that we're in. 
it'll probably just be a few and then it'll stop. I'm sure the party's going to continue. Nothing to worry about. I just wanted you guys to be awake and alert to what was happening. And that's 630 and, in the morning and you were woken up at that point. Yeah. And in all your time in Israel, Natalie, in the past, had you experienced rockets like this? Had you experienced Iron Dome? Anything along these lines? No, that's what's funny is that I've personally been to Israel over 20 times in my life. And each time was like at least for minimum two weeks up to two months. And I've never been in Israel at a time of war. So I've never experienced rockets. I've never experienced the siren that goes off when rockets are heading our way. No homicide bombers, no any of that stuff that, you know, we see on the news that happens. I've never, I've never experienced that in, in all my times of being in Israel. And as the only American there, I was the only one who had never experienced this before. And the way this girl described to us like the situation and what was happening just goes to show how much this is a reality for Israelis, that they're used to this, unfortunately, that this is something that they grow up with. So for them, a few rockets is not a reason to stop a party or to stop your day in general, because if you stopped your day every time a few rockets were sent in your direction, you wouldn't get anything done. So imagine like if this happened at Coachella, like kids would not react in such a calm manner and the party would not continue. It would not. But (laughs) Bad Bunny would be getting off the stage immediately. I can only imagine like the craziness that would ensue if like even one rocket was sent their way, you know, but unfortunately for Israelis, this is their reality. So at first the festival didn't even shut off the music. And I just remember standing and looking up at the sky and, and we're all looking up and we're seeing the rockets being intercepted and we're counting and we're like, okay, one, two, three rockets, four rockets, five rockets. And then after maybe five or seven, we start to realize this isn't any another like ordinary situation that this is more intense than that. And we start counting 15, 10, 15, 20 rockets we start to get a little nervous and that's when the festival security shuts off the music and announces on the loudspeakers for everyone to please pack up their things and evacuate to their cars. So after roughly 20 or so rockets, the Nova organizers, you assume then uh, realized something was on something mm-hmm. more than a couple rockets with iron dome and they shut it down. Yeah. Okay. And then what next? So we pack up our things, we evacuate to our cars, and at this point we think it's still just rockets. So in our so is head, there our any panic? Fear, is there any anybody freaking out or what's the scene like? There's definitely some people that just generally are naturally more panicked. So there were some people like freaking out, some people a little bit a little bit more nervous, but I would say the overall um I guess reaction of the people at the festival was like okay, like, like, fuck Hamas. Why are they doing this to us? Like, we just wanted to enjoy. We just want to party. But I guess we're going to drive home now. Like, party's over. We still had no idea that there were terrorists on foot with guns so close to us and that they were coming in our direction. So at this point, we're just kind of, like, annoyed. 
And we figure like, okay, the Iron Dome is going to protect us. Our biggest fear is like the scraps of the rockets falling on us as we're driving out of the festival grounds. And obviously that we might be stuck in a little bit of traffic. Because if you can imagine leaving the festival grounds, you're going onto like one narrow dirt road in order to get on the main roads. And there's several thousand people ultimately that have to get out, right? Yeah. So thousands of kids, hundreds and hundreds of cars. Um, and we're all trying to get out at the same time and we're all and trying to respect each other. essentially you're all in a kind of a bit of a makeshift line, if I understand, right? Because there's one road yeah. in and out. And so essentially everybody's got to get onto that road at some point. So everybody's going to one mm-hmm. focal point place, yes? Yes. And actually on our way to the car, I had asked my friends, like, I figured like, okay, we're going to be stuck in traffic for a while. I should probably go to the bathroom now. And I asked my friends, I'm like, you think it's okay if like you guys wait for me by the car? I'm going to go to the bathroom really quick and come back. And they're like, yeah, of course, like we're waiting for you. And I went to the bathrooms and then I went back to the car. And not until about two weeks later did I realize how much I was putting my life in danger by going to those bathrooms. Because about two weeks later was when a video surfaced of the Hamas terrorists coming to those exact bathrooms where I was maybe 10, 15 minutes later. And just shooting at every bathroom stall, trying to kill anyone who was hiding inside. So luckily, I wasn't there at that time. So we go back to our car, and we start driving out. And we're all driving down this dirt road. And the festival security is kind of like on golf carts on either side of the road, trying to guide everyone in the right direction. And do they have firearms, Natalie, the festival security? They have like um like handheld, like guns. a pistol, but they have a gun, not a yeah. taser or or uh, mace. Or they have a they have a firearm. They have a, a pistol, a handheld gun. I I think they had handheld guns. I don't know if every single one of them did. Okay. I don't know like exactly. Um, but I think most security is supposed to have a gun on them. That's just my assumption. Um, I don't don't quote me on it. Okay, but. Not sure. Um, But unfortunately, basically almost all of them did die um, protecting us. They they really did their job until their last moments. And uh, they they deserve recognition for that. Can can you tell me a little bit about them or a particular security guard that you remember? As as we're driving out, what I remember the most is that they were in golf carts like on either side of the dirt road and they're trying to guide everyone in the right direction. And first we're driving in one direction, trying to get out. And then they start asking people to turn around and go in the other direction because there's so much traffic on this dirt road. And they figured like, maybe we should have people going two different directions. And then eventually they ask everyone to pull their cars over to the side of the dirt road and get out and start running. At this point, so let, me, let me just stop you we're if I so could. confused. So at yeah. this point, the security guards who you think did a good job trying to uh, save you and all of the other concert goers, the festival goers, they, ass- they assess the situation that you are actually going to be safer out of a vehicle than in one. Yes. Wow. But we, we couldn't understand why, because we still thought it was just rockets, but. So I they didn't they, tell you that there were terrorists. You didn't know at that point that there were terrorists nearby. So, so no. So 
I guess as soon as they realized that there were terrorists running towards us and that they were shooting, that's when they started yelling, like, hysterically. They started yelling at everyone, get out of your cars, get out of your cars, pull your car over and start running. And we were very confused because we're like, why Why would you tell us to run from rockets? That makes no sense. But we figured, okay, they're doing their job. Whatever they say, we'll do. So we nobody, I hate to interrupt you again, but I think it's so important. No. It was so inconceivable to you and your friends that what was about to happen could happen, that even with the security guards who you trusted telling you to run, it still did not enter your minds what might be happening. Nope. Okay. People are still confused up until today how this happened because we have a border for a reason but they breached the border and a lot of people there's still a lot of um questions in regards to how that happened so for us that wasn't something that entered our mind we we did not think of that as a possibility but obviously we were wrong um yeah it's not something that even crossed my mind but we pulled our car over and we sat in the car. I remember for like a few moments, kind of looking at each other confused. And that's when we heard the first gunshots and automatically we opened our doors and we started running. Festival goers were running in every direction. Nobody knew what direction was necessarily the direction of safety. Um, At a certain point, after running for a while, I remember um, most of the festival grounds, like it was all like plateau. And then there was like a certain point where where you could go down this like steep hill and then it's like plateauing again. And I remember at a certain point we're running and we see kids at the bottom of that hill running towards us. And automatically we realize that these are kids that we're like in that first group that left the festival grounds. We were kind of in this middle group. So people always ask like, how did you get out? Like, is it because you were the first people to leave? And the answer is no, because the first people to leave, a lot of them were shut down because the terrorists were waiting for them. And then the last people to leave, a lot of them were shut down because the terrorists arrived at the festival grounds. And we were kind of in this middle group, which I think where most of the survivors lie. And I remember seeing as like, as we were running in the beginning, I remember seeing like dozens of kids running in our direction and you automatically realize they're being pursued. They're being shot at. You're running towards terrorists and you now have to change directions. When you saw them running towards you, did you understand that this wasn't one or two terrorists, that this was something, this, there was a lot of, a lot of bad guys around? Yes, definitely because cause the original gunshots were coming like from behind us and we started running this way. And then as we're running this way, we see kids running towards us. So we know that they're also coming from the left. They're also coming from the right. And it's hard to make a decision what direction you should be running to. And a lot of the time when people would ask me how we made those choices, what direction to run to, where to hide, if to hide or to continue running... Um, I would try to describe to them that like, we didn't know what decision was the right decision. 
we just simply had to make a decision. And we didn't know if that decision was going to get us killed or save us, but you just had to choose something in that moment. And I, I spoke at a vigil in Manhattan. And at the vigil, um, a man who has heard my story, has heard a few of my interviews, he came up to me and he told me um, that he has interviewed a lot of Holocaust survivors. And when these Holocaust survivors were asked how they made those decisions in life and death situations, how they knew what decision to make in order to save their lives, they coined a phrase. And the phrase is a choiceless choice. And basically, it's a moment where you simply have to make a choice, but you don't know which choice is going to save your life or get you killed, but you just have to make a choice. And that perfectly describes every decision we made while running from the Hamas terrorists. They, they were all choiceless choices. And luckily for us, the choices that we made saved us. But along the way, we lost a lot of friends that at certain points, for example, I think maybe like an hour into running, we ran into a friend from our campsite and to better like explain to you. So the entire time I'm running, I'm running with the three friends that I came with. And then along the way, like we would bump into people that we knew from like our campsite or from just in general. And those were the three guys. Yeah. So the three guys are the ones that I came with. Those are the ones I was running with the entire time. Cause they're really the only ones that I knew. And was it hard to run and, for that length of time? Or what were you experiencing as, as all of this running is happening? So for, first I'll tell you about one of the other choices, choices, and then I'll tell you, uh, it, it definitely was hard, but I'll tell you about that. Um, so along the way, we, we ran into a friend from our campsite and he was hiding in a ditch with like maybe 10 other kids. And when he saw us, he, he told us, like, guys, like, come hide in this ditch with us. Come hide from the terrorists. And we started to crawl into the ditch. And as we're crawling into it, one of my friends that I came with started yelling at us. And he was like, no, guys, this is a bad idea. Like, if we stay and hide here and the Hamas terrorists find us, like, we're going to get killed. Like, our only option is to continue running. Our only option for survival is to run. There's no hiding. And we continued running. And unfortunately, he was right because the kids who did stay back and hid in that ditch, we later found out were shot and killed. I'm so sorry, Natalie. <laughs> when I talk about it at this point, I I always try to explain to people that to me, number one, I I understand now that I fully disassociated from the moment I saw the first rockets and that's why, um, like right after the event, um, maybe four days after, I already started doing interviews. And I understood that the fact that I disassociated gave me the power to speak about this over and over again without breaking down and without getting emotional, and without causing more emotional harm to myself. And a lot of other people who are at the festival can't say the same. A lot of them have PTSD. And that's why from the moment that I got asked to do that first interview, I took every interview possible to be that voice for those who were taken hostage, for those who were killed, for those who were too traumatized to speak out, because it's important to speak about it. But, but thankfully, I'm able to speak about it without, you know, breaking down um, every time I talk about it. 
but but yeah it is it's very hard to learn that like a lot of people that we knew did not make it out thank you for your bravery thank you you know sort of paint a picture for me of what that experience is like so you you leave the kids who are hiding and then what happens mm-hmm. So we continue running and along the way, um, the reason why security told people to leave their cars is number one, because that narrow road was so congested with the traffic of all these cars that it was making everyone an easy target for the terrorists. And the reason why we couldn't drive, simply drive through like the rest of the fields around that dirt road was because they were like fields for planting and for farming. And you really, most people couldn't drive through them unless they had four-wheel drive. So that's why they told everyone to leave their cars behind and start running. But some people were able to drive through them. A lot of the people who stayed in their cars actually ended up getting shot down. But along the way, as we were running, um, there were a few instances where people with cars were trying to pick up as many girls as possible. Because the girls, for the most part, couldn't run as fast as the boys. And also try to imagine we're not wearing clothes for running. We're wearing festival clothes. So we're, I had combat boots on and a lot of people have flip-flops and slippers and Birkin whatever shoes on. Yeah. Like people aren't. Probably a lot of people, people walking around barefoot, right? Yeah. One of my friends actually lost his shoe along the way. His shoe just like ripped in half and he, he was just walking with one no shoe, one like flip-flop. And there were a few instances where someone tried to pick me up with their car. Um, but I personally had more anxiety, like being separated from people I knew because I knew that if something happened that they would make sure to take care of me. And even though maybe it seemed like safer to be in the car, I wanted to stick with the people I knew. Um, so I didn't go in the car with anyone, but there, there were a lot of people who, um, stayed in their cars and were trying to pick up as many girls as possible. About two hours into running um we came across a police officer and we we asked him like like where where's the backup where's the army like what's going on and he said that he couldn't call for backup because the local police station where he works was taken over by hamas a lot of the people that he worked with there were killed and that Hamas took over the local, like the radio of the local police station. So he was kind of walking alongside us just to give us as much protection as he could. Um, but he couldn't even call for backup. And I remember as he was walking alongside us, I could hear the terrorists like yelling on his walkie talkie. And we asked him, we eventually um, got onto this like main paved road. And there were maybe a couple hundred other kids who also got to this road. And we asked him if he thought it was a bad idea that we walk on this road with all these other kids that being like surrounded by so many people might make us an easy target. And he said, no, for the most part, from what he understands, like this area is fairly safe. The terrorists haven't like reached this part yet. And that we should stay on this road and that we should continue walking in the direction of the sun on this road, because that will take us to the town of Patish which was one of the safest towns to get to at the moment and one of the closest towns. At that time, um, so we continue walking on this road um, for a few hours. 
And along the way, we like passed by, um, there's like a lot of farmland. So there were like some giant like water, I guess like water fountains for the farmland. Um, and we like once when we would pass them, like all these like hundreds of kids, we would like go up and like make a line and like give each other turns. And we would like splash our face with water and some of us would drink the water, even though the water probably wasn't that safe to drink um, because it was meant for farming. And um, we continued continued along the way. And eventually, after about four hours of on and off running, me and my three friends see this little tree. And we hadn't heard gunshots in a few minutes. So we decide to sit under this tree, get some shade. And at this point, we're still like maybe an hour and a half walk from Patish. And we're sitting under under this tree and suddenly we see a big white pickup truck driving in our direction. And automatically for all of us, like our reaction was, this is a terrorist coming to kill us because that was also the exact type of car that they were known for having. They were known to be driving white pickup trucks. And I remember we all kind of simultaneously like half got up and contemplated running And at the same time, we all kind of sat back down and realized we have nowhere to run to and that this is probably the end. And we all kind of just sat down and like smiled and nodded at each other as if to like say goodbye. And it was nice knowing you and kind of just accepted our fate at that point. And fortunately for us, it wasn't a terrorist. It was a man from the town of Patish who left the safety of his own town and drove towards all of this chaos to save innocent lives of people he doesn't even know. And then um, he picked us up, he drove us to his town and that's, that's how we were saved. I I honestly believe that if it wasn't for him. And how many did he save with you on that truck ride? With me, probably about 15. And since then, I actually got to meet him a few weeks ago. It took a while to find him because as soon as he dropped us off, he turned right back around to go save more people. And it took a while to find him, but I actually got to meet him a few weeks ago. He saved... What's his first name, Natalie? uh, His first name is Moshe. Moshe. And he saved, I would say, almost 200 people. And his son, um, his son saved a few hundred because his son had this giant like metal cart that he could attach to the back of his car. And that alone fit like probably 30 or 40 people at a time. Um, So his son also saved like, I think around 300. There are angels on this earth, aren't there? Oh, he's, he's definitely an angel. And I, I did an interview with him and, and since then, He's been asked uh, to do other interviews and um, they keep telling me that he's turning them all down because he doesn't want the recognition. He doesn't want the spotlight. He simply did this out of the goodness of his heart. He's really the most selfless person I've ever met. It's interesting. Um, As you know, I know many Israelis and therefore I know many Israeli men and, uh, I'm not surprised to hear Moshe's story and I'm not surprised he doesn't want to sit for interviews because the 
Israeli men that I know that are like Moshe don't want to do interviews either. Yeah, he he said, like, listen, I just I did this because this is who I am. Like during the interview he did with me, which is I think the only one he's done, um they asked him, like, is this um were you surprised by your own ability to like risk yourself over and over again for other people? And he said, no, like the town where he lives is the town where he grew up. And he said, everyone in the town knows that anytime someone needs something, they can ask me and I'll drop everything I'm doing and go help them. And that's just, that's just who he is. And I'm so grateful to him. And so how long was the drive from the time Moshe found you guys to uh, when you were in his town? I think it was about like 15 minutes or so. So it was quick. And when you got yeah. there, um, how did it feel? Did you feel safe or could you still hear gunshots? Paint a picture for me. So once we were in his car it was like the first time where I felt like I could breathe and I couldn't believe that this was happening. I was in such shock at that moment. Um, while he was driving us, I was still trying to like duck. Like at first I w- we were all like sitting and standing in the back of his pickup truck. And at first I was standing and then I was like, okay, but if we pass by any terrorists, I should probably like sit down and duck, um, in case they shoot at us. So I didn't feel necessarily hundred percent safe yet. And even when we got to the town of Patish, um, first we went to the bomb shelter and there were a few times where rockets, um, were sent our way and like the red alarm went off. So we still didn't feel a thousand percent safe. And then it still took some time until anyone from the army, until any soldiers came to the town to protect us. Oh, sorry about the dog. I, I can't hear the so dog. It, <laughs> it's okay. Uh, I'm sure she's fine. Oh, wow, okay. What's the dog's okay. name? Uh, her name is Shoku. Shoku? Yeah, Shoko. It means oh, like Shoko. chocolate milk in Hebrew. Yeah. Hi, Shoko. <laughs> you you can probably can you hear her now? Oh. Uh, just a little bit. But it's nice that she's there with you. Uh, my my <laughs> yeah, she's cat baby. who identifies as a dog is sitting right here. He's <laughs> napping. She she's always with me. Her second name is Shadow, because everywhere I go she follows me. Um but yeah, so even when we got to Patish, we didn't feel 100% safe. And I remember, um, I, I would say I didn't feel completely safe until we got back to my friend's parents' house. Um, and that, that was the moment I actually told my mom that I was at the festival. Because originally my mom called me at around 8 a.m. Israel time, which was 1 a.m. New York time. And I knew that she was calling because she saw the news. As an Israeli living in the States, in the United States, she's constantly glued to the Israeli news. And I knew that if I didn't answer the phone, she would start freaking out. So I was like, okay, I have to answer her. I have to like calm her down. And because she also knew I was at a party. And at that moment when she called, like there weren't any gunshots for a few minutes. There weren't any rockets being intercepted overhead. Like people were fairly quiet. So I was like, okay, it's a good time to answer her. And when I answered, she was like, hi, like Natalie, like, have you seen the news? Do you know what's happening? I'm like, yeah, like I saw the news. Like I saw something about like an attack. And she was like, yeah, like, weren't you at a party? Is that the party you were at? 
And I told her like, no, I was, I was at a different party. Um, we're actually on our way home now. And she was like, okay, good. Like I just want to make sure. And then they started shooting at us again and people like started screaming and then a rocket's being intercepted overhead at that same moment. I was like, okay, like I need to hang up on her. I don't want her to like hear all of this. And I was like, oh, like, um, like mom, I have bad reception. I'll call you later. And she was like, okay, just want to make sure that you were safe. And a lot of people asked me, they were like, didn't you want to say goodbye? Like there were a lot of kids at the festival that like, as they're running from terrorists, like they called their parents. There's a lot of recordings of like kids like saying bye to their families. And a lot of them who honestly didn't make it. And a lot of people asked me, like, didn't you want to say goodbye? And I think that goes back to me like disassociating from the very start and not having that that feeling of fear that I'm going to die any moment. Um, cause it, it felt very much like an out of body experience and it felt very much like I was watching everything happen to me and it wasn't really me who was like in the situation. And, um, so I guess that's why I didn't see the reason in saying goodbye to her. And I was like, I'd rather just keep her calm, um, because there's nothing she could do all the way from New York anyway. So I, I didn't, I, when we got back to my friend's house, that's when I called her to tell her everything that happened. Wow. And so at what point then, Natalie, did you uh, finally learn about the size and the scope as well as sort of the depth of the pure evil that took place that day? How did you learn about those kinds of things? I mean, honestly, we're still learning about it until today. You know, it's every day there's a new testimony every day like i i had no idea at that time as we were running um like a lot of people were like checking their phones and they saw that certain towns near the festival were also attacked so we knew about that but during that time when we were running away from the terrorists at the festival i had no idea that there were girls being brutally murdered and raped so close to me and there's so many testimonies that have come out since then and it's very hard it's very hard to hear these things but I feel that it's so important to bear witness and it's so important to listen to these testimonies and to to understand like yes this this did happen and just because it's hard to listen to doesn't mean that it's not important to listen to. And I, I gave a testimony um, like a month ago. And after my testimony, um, there, there was a woman who came in, a doctor, who she was one of the main people who was identifying bodies from the hospital and, and doing the autopsies in those first few days she said for like four days she worked 20 hours a day um identifying bodies and i i asked her i'm like do you mind if i stay and listen to your testimony even though mine's done and like you're going after me like do you mind if i stay and listen to yours and i stayed and i listened and like even from listening to her testimony i learned like new things that i didn't know and she was saying like when the first few bodies came in 
you know, this is something that she does for work. So she's very like desensitized to it. But generally when she's doing an autopsy, it's, it's either a soldier in uniform or it's something else, you know, but like, she's never had to do so many autopsies on like, she was describing them as just like such beautiful kids, so young covered in glitter and their hair is done and their makeup is done and they're wearing beautiful outfits and she was like I've never had to do something like this and I've never fallen so in love with each body that came in and she said that after like the fourth or the fifth one her colleague told her like listen you need to put like a mask over your eyes like close the curtains and just look at them as bodies and do the autopsy because we have so many coming in you can't be admiring every single one and she said like she she just had to like flip that switch and and just like go one after the other and the things that she said about the girls about how most of them their pelvises were shattered because they were brutally raped for the most part when they were alive um there were t- testimonies of girls who said that they were hiding um for their lives to make sure that they didn't find them, that the terrorists didn't find them. And as they were hiding, they could see the terrorists. I mean, it's very hard to describe these things, but I think it's important, but they were gang raping girls and then shooting them and killing them as they were raping them and dismembering them and burning them. And there's, there's just so many stories and every day there's another story and every day there's another testimony and it's very hard and it's very heavy. Um, but I truly do feel it's very important to bear witness to it and to listen to these testimonies. Thank you, Natalie. What have you thought about the world's reaction? And in particular, I'm sure you've seen this trending um, as I have. Hashtag me too, unless you're a Jew. It's funny. Those are the words that were in my head right now as you were speaking. You like read my mind. That was the next thing I was going to bring up. Okay, great. So so tell me about your thoughts on that. As a Jew growing up in New York, I always felt like very safe. And I always felt very privileged to grow up somewhere where I feel safe as a Jew. Um, in comparison to, let's say, my family, friends in France who have always dealt with anti-Semitism. And suddenly, after these attacks, number one, the world's reaction to the attacks, it's like they're throwing salt on our open wounds, as if it's not bad enough how horrific the attacks were, but to deny them, to say that they were well-deserved, to not speak out about them. um, To me and to a lot of other people, if you're not speaking out and condemning Hamas, then it's as if you're on their side. And and I know it's not easy to speak out sometimes. I know that there are a lot of people who have friends on both sides, but there are so many activists who are Christian, who are Muslim, who are even have Palestinian roots, who have been able to come out and condemn Hamas and speak out against these horrific attacks and if those people can do it, even though they have family members and friends 
who would disagree with them and who would fight with them and maybe not speak to them, then everyone else can. And if you're not, I take personal offense to that. And same goes for all the feminists. Me too, unless you're a Jew. It's truly accurate and sad and it hurts. And the reason why I originally brought up growing up in New York is because only after October 7th did I realize how much anti-Semitism there really is here in New York. It's as if all those people who would make like little anti-Semitic jokes here and there, and it was like, ah, ha, ha, it's just a joke. Those are the people that after October 7th felt so comfortable showing their true colors and taking off that mask and being like, no, it's not a joke. This is how I really feel. And if anything, it's good to see people's true colors because why would I want someone in my life if that's how they feel about who I am? And for all for all these feminists, where are you? You're you're denying the rape of all these women, and there's video proof. There's literal proof. There's autopsies. Like, how can you deny such things unless it's just simply because you're anti-Semitic? And that's the answer to all of it. That's the answer to all these denials. That's the answer to everything. And it's it's not the first time the Jews have been attacked. It's not the first time they've been persecuted. And I would like to say, I would hope that it would be the last. Um, on the one side, I've seen so much hate, but on the other side, I've really seen so much support and love. And it has given me some hope. I'm glad to hear that. And I want you to know that I love you. And I love the Jewish Thank people. You. I've had Jewish friends Thank since you. I was a little boy. I've been to Israel many times. I've worked with many legendary Jews and Israelis in the tech industry. So, you know where I stand, which is right next to you. Yeah, it's it's great to see how many allies there there are. Well, and I've been disgusted, Natalie, that for the most part in the tech Silicon Valley world, I have not seen very many non-Jews, and I have not seen there's several billionaire Jews, high profile, that really have not said very much. And um, I think it's fucking disgusting. I was, I was going to put it more nicely, but I think it's fucking disgusting. <laughs> and I think there is no, right exactly and wrong, that. and I think there is good and evil. And we saw pure evil. And my grandfather was in World War II. And he told me what it was about when I was a little boy because I asked him. And never again means never again. It does. And never again is now, you know, like, like I said, like to these people who aren't speaking out, it, it is fucking disgusting and it's upsetting. And I even have some friends that haven't really said much or spoken out and I'm not going to come to them and attack them for it. I'm not going to try to make them do something that maybe they feel quote unquote uncomfortable with. But like I said, if, if I see allies that are able to speak out, regardless of the fact that their own family members will hate them for it and they're willing to put themselves on the line that way, then like anyone can. And I've seen people not speak out that have spoken out, out, about a lot of other 
things that have happened in the past. And it's just upsetting to me that you would speak up out about those things, but you won't speak out for juice. People are fucking cowards. And we also learned something that was shocking and horrific to me, Natalie, which is the connection between DEI and anti-Semitism. And this DEI insanity that there are only two groups of people in the world, the oppressed and the oppressors. And Jews are Mm -hmm. oppressors because they're successful because if you're successful by definition, you're an oppressor. So – This was a uh, calculus that I did not understand on October 6th. And um, three disgusting university presidents gave me a PhD in the connection between DEI and anti-Semitism. Oh, God. It's another thing now that we're talking about university professors. Let's talk about the education system and how the education system is failing the Jews. And failing the public in general, because the amount of people I see that are so misinformed, like you said, a lot of people are calling Jews the oppressors because Jews are known to be successful. A lot of people are saying that Jews are white colonialists. And I'm a little pale right now because it's winter, but I'm 100% not white. Well, and, I'm looking straight at you, Natalie. And uh, <laughs> if I look at me, I'm I'm so white, I'm sort of <laughs> turning green. It's a terrible Scottish white, you know, because I've got some red hair. My grandfather had reddish. So I'm fucking about as white as you can get. And I'm looking at you <laughs> and um, you're definitely nowhere near as white as I am. <laughs> I mean... You know, as a Middle Eastern Jew, it's it's the genetics. You know, I was no, but you guys have all the best skin. My wife is my <laughs> wife do. is Italian. She's got your complexion. I look like a sack of shit, and she's going to be beautiful forever. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely don't look like a sack of shit, but I'm sure your wife is very beautiful. Um, but but that's the issue that people associate Jews for some reason. I think maybe it's because one of the main thing that the general public knows about Jews is the Holocaust and the Holocaust was mainly Eastern European Jews. So they automatically assume all Jews are white. But the thing is what they don't realize is all Jews originated in the land of Israel. They originated in the middle East. They are native to modern day Israel, which is Judea. And then they were kicked out of the land and that's where the Jewish diaspora comes from. And they went to the middle East. They went to Spain, they went to Europe and the Eastern European Jews that were in Europe for many, many years, obviously have very Eastern European features. And I think that's why a lot of people assume that all Jews are white. Well, it's funny. I I hate to interrupt you, but when I'm in Tel Aviv and I go out to dinner with friends or colleagues I have a shaved head, which, as you well know, is a pretty popular hairdo for guys in Israel. There are plenty of mm-hmm. guys who just shave their head, even if they don't need to the way I do. Um, <laughs> and um, and so people will come up to me and they'll just start speaking to me because they'll assume that I am, to your point, 
you know, a Russian Jew or, you know, somewhere along those lines. And, and I have had people just be incredibly shocked that I didn't know Hebrew and that I wasn't Jewish. So you're absolutely right. Look, a lot of races, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot, there's a lot of mix in the race, right? There's there's no uniform race. I mean, come on, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And, and people think that like, that like Israel is all Eastern European Jews that after the Holocaust were placed in Israel. And it's so false because there were so many people there before Israel even became a state because there were so many Moroccan Jews, Syrian Jews, Iraqi Jews, Iranian Jews that were also persecuted and kicked out of those countries and then fled to Israel before Israel became a state and after Israel became a state. Like, for example, my grandparents, my mom's parents fled Iran and came to Israel when Israel was five years old because Jews in general were in Iran for thousands of years. And right before the Shah was overthrown and the Muslim Brotherhood took over, and obviously now Iran is run by a terrorist organization who funds Hamas, right right before the Shah was going to be thrown over, people like Jews already knew that something was happening. There was already a lot of anti-Semitism against Jews for like a hundred or a couple hundred years in Iran. And, and people knew that there was going to be issues. So my grandfather and my grandmother left to Israel. Israel is made up by so many different people. Israel has Ethiopian Jews. And for the general public to be like, Jews are white and they don't belong in the Middle East is just so ridiculous because even the whitest of Jews at the end of the day originated from the Middle East. And simply because they were kicked out of their own land, they had to go to Spain and Europe and other places in the Middle East in order to survive. And now they're coming home. And, and to just say that they're white is just so crazy to me because nobody in my family is white. Well, and here's the other one. I love this argument. You know, whose land is whose and fuck you, go back to go back home. Da, 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 da. Well, if you know anything about history, what you know is that humanity started in East Africa. So everybody who's not in East Africa is not in their home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just insane. Um, but also to deny the fact that Jews originated in this land is also to deny Roman histories, to deny the history of all the different people that conquered that land. It's literally written in so many different history books because so many different people conquered the Jews in that land and tried to enslave them. So to deny that the Jews were ever there, to, de- to deny so many different other cultures' history, well, which is I'm, also insane. I'm not a historian, but I know enough to know that there are many, if not all, but certainly many uh, Middle Eastern countries that, if you roll the clock back, had very significant Jewish populations. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit, Natalie, about CAM and why you decided to get involved. So since the attacks, like I said, because I was disassociated and I don't have the PTSD that a lot of other people had, I felt that I had a duty to be their voice and to speak out on their behalf and to share my story and their story for people to hear and listen to. 
so I started doing interviews right away. At a certain point, I was doing four to six interviews a day. And then CAM, the Combat Anti-Semitism Movement, reached out to me and sent me to D.C. with one of their partners um, to speak to senators and to share my story with these senators. And after about a week after I went with their partner to D.C. to share my story, the CEO, Sasha Reutman, um, he called me. Uh, to kind of check in on me and to ask me how it was being in DC, how it was meeting all these high power people. And after I told him a little bit about my experience and how it felt, he asked me, you know, like, what are you doing with your day to day now after the attacks? And what were you doing before? And I told him I was working in real estate. And I haven't gone back to work yet because I have so many interviews that I'm being asked to do, and I feel like it's more important for me right now to be dedicating my time to speaking out as opposed to going back to work for now. And he gave me an incredible opportunity. He asked me if I wanted to join their team and to continue to be able to speak out and do all my speaking engagements while also working with them and being on their team. And I was so excited. I, I said yes. And at first I was part-time because he knew that I still had a lot of speaking engagements. Now I'm full-time. Um, I'm one of the hats that I wear at the Combat Anti-Semitism Movement is being the public uh, affairs officer, which means one, doing speaking engagements, um, building partnerships, interfaith partnerships, and a big thing that CAM focuses on. So there's a lot of um, Jewish organizations out there. And a lot of them, we feel focus too much on the Jewish community itself, when in reality, what we should be focusing on is interfaith relations and partnerships and building bridges between the Jewish people and Christians and Muslims and people who don't identify with any religion. And that's what we do at camp. Um, we we focus on building those bridges. And I've only been at camp for a little over two months. And I've already seen how big of an impact they make on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's really been incredible working with them. And that's how I met you. And I'm I'm so excited to now dedicate my life to activism. I I feel like this is where I was always meant to be. And I got here in a very difficult, unconventional way. But I'm happy that I got here. And I'm happy that this is now what I'm doing and that I can use my time for something so powerful and so great. And hopefully I'll make a difference. You already have. Tremendously. Thank you. And it's a miracle you're here. It truly is. And of course, when I see the photos and videos of some of the other festival goers and uh, some of them don't look that different than you, and I think most people would have that reaction. So you're speaking for them, and that's an extraordinary thing. And also you're speaking for the other survivors who, like you said, for one reason or another, don't want to do what you're doing because it's tough. Natalie, is there anything else you'd like to say 
Um, just thank you. Thank you for giving me the space and the time and the platform to speak out not only about what happened, but about everything that's happened since October 7th. And something that I would like to say, um, as someone who's gotten a lot of negative feedback about speaking out, one of the things that people like to say, and they like to like, put words in my mouth is, um, why are you okay with um, innocent Palestinian lives being taken and killed? And something I want people to understand is speaking out against anti-Semitism, condemning a terrorist organization does not equate thinking that deaths of innocent Palestinians is good or okay or should be celebrated. It's not. And if you really cared about innocent Palestinians and their lives, you would also condemn Hamas. And I, I would just like to challenge anyone who's listening to this to please go do your own research. Don't just look at one platform and get all your information from there and think that it's all correct. Every platform has its biases. And that's why it's important to do real research and to really form your own opinions. And don't just be a sheep. Don't just be a robot and regurgitate random quotes that you've seen from one platform to people. Don't accuse people of being pro-killing of other innocent lives just because they're speaking out about their own people. Try to really go do your own research and then come to a conclusion. And hopefully when you do that research, you'll realize that condemning Hamas and fighting against Hamas is pro-everyone because they're not just going to come for the Jews. When they say the West is next, it's really true. And I hope that more people will, um, after listening to this, will go out and do that research and better understand what's happening. I couldn't agree with you more. Most people don't realize that Gazans are among the highest people, highest uh, donated people in the history of the world. And depending on what data you believe, somewhere between 40 to 60% of that aid gets stolen. And we know the leaders of Hamas. They live in Qatar, in mansions. And we know their net worth. And mm-hmm. they're worth billions, according to Forbes. Mm-hmm. And they drive around in Bugattis. And my friend Jordan Harbinger just had the son of one of the founders of Hamas on his podcast. It's very worth listening to. Oh, the, the one that wrote the book, Son of Hamas? Yes. Yeah. He's not a fan, to put it mildly. <laughs> yeah. Most people don't realize that there's only one place in the Middle East where uh, Jews and Muslims live together with equal rights. Mm-hmm. Most people do not realize that Israel elected a Muslim, a Muslim to its Supreme Court, many to its parliament. I mean, it's, it's insane. The other thing I find interesting to just touch on the anti-Semitic piece, when the government in China does what it does to the Uyghurs, Snow young people on TikTok protesting that. When Assad kills at least half a million Muslims, and if my memory is right, um, maybe as many as 100,000 Palestinians. Mm-hmm. It's nothing. 
Nobody, nobody says a word. And what most people don't realize is the people who kill Arabs are Arabs. The people who kill Muslims are Muslims. As a percentage, it's not even close. Mm-hmm. And nobody says anything about that. Um, and of course, Israel has the right to defend itself. And of course, if the United States lived next to, if Canada or Mexico behaved in any way, shape, or form the way Hamas or Hezbollah behaved, it would have been over a long time ago. So let's, oh, yeah. let's if we're going to have a conversation, let's have an adult one. In my opinion. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of double standards. <laughs> yes. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on, Natalie? No, I think that's it. Well, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. You are an inspiration. You're an extraordinary person. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for having me on. Anytime. God bless you. Well, there she is, the legendary Natalie Sandaji. And I bet you know somebody who would greatly benefit from hearing her story. And uh, I would encourage you, if you're listening right now on your smartphone, to hit the share button and send this to the people in your life who would really gain something from Natalie and her story. I'd also uh, encourage you to join me in supporting Combat Anti-Semitism Movement, or CAM for short. Uh, you can find out more about their work and make a donation at camb- combatantisemitismmovement.org. Thank you so much. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different. <laughs>